I love the Reverend Billy. Uh, good words. Um, hey, I want to welcome all of you out there to uh, the House Mercy uh, Sunday service. I'm so glad that you all tuned in, and uh, we can uh, we can feel you out there. And we wish uh, sometime soon we will all be together again in person. Uh, a lot of you uh, know that. Our good friend Leif Stainis has been in the last stages of his life for a while now, and uh, we're sad to announce that he died last night. And uh, he and Chris and Isaiah have been such such integral parts of making the House of Mercy what it is today. So we're all very sad to hear that uh, and share that news with you. Um, as I know you will pray for Isaiah and Kristen. And with these COVID times, it's so difficult to negotiate a memorial service. But we will keep you informed through the newsletter um, what arrangements will be made and how you might share your uh, uh, prayers and uh, grief with Kristen and Isaiah and support them. So thank you. Yeah, we're going to miss Leif a lot. Um, hey, everyone should put this on their calendar or you know, write it on your hand or something because we are actually going to get together in the flesh. If you can make it, if you feel safe, Feast of Jonah on September 20th, uh, 5 p.m. on the church lawn, There'll be music, food, liturgical arts. Music, food, and liturgical arts. Is that safe? We'll be sure to make it safe. Okay. It's going to be BYOBB, bring your own body and blood. 
Yeah. And you might be bringing your own food, too. But we will let you know, and we cannot wait to see you. Yeah, that's going to be fantastic. And when we say we'll meet together in the flesh, I mean, that's you can interpret that however you want. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a feast. I don't know. Uh, no, it uh, it's going to be great to see it's gonna be great to see everybody who can, yeah, who can come. Um, oh, well, also, I would like to thank every one of you who continues to support us financially. And I know um, that uh, times are hard for everybody, and everybody, the economy is not, uh, is yeah, it's going down. And some of you have lost jobs or had them cut back. So to the amount to which you are able to continue to support us, we appreciate it. We are grateful. We def we need it. Uh, and so even some of you who maybe have just discovered this podcast and have never even been to the House of Mercy, we uh, please feel free. If you are moved, go to the House of Mercy website uh, to the donate button. And uh, may that way we'll ensure that uh, when it is time that we can all meet together, that we're all able to do that. All right. All right, this is the House of Mercy, and welcome to it. Won't you please join me now in the prayer of invocation? God of mercy, find us in this place, wherever we are. Make us aware that you are here with us in this moment as in the last moment, and in the next, as we breathe, unfold our awareness of your peace surrounding us, your love enfolding us, and your mercy freeing us to be here now. Amen. May the peace of Christ be with you all.
Join me now in the prayers of community. I will end each prayer with Lord in your mercy, and I invite you to respond. Hear our prayer. God of mercy, it seems that signs of suffering, injustice, and aggression are not so hard to see. In your grace, with your love, change our perspective. Help us to apprehend the good, the empathetic, the miraculous the kind, the forgiving, and the surrender, and the beauty, and the peace, that they are really everywhere much more present and draw us forward and together to act in hope and relax into your love. Lord, in your mercy. Hear our prayer. God of mercy, we thank you for the life of Leif Stannis, our longtime friend and collaborator in making this mercy happen. Bring to Kristen and Isaiah, first of all, what they need, whether it be your presence, overwhelming peace, comfort, tears. Walk with them through their grief. Bring comfort to all of us who mourn his death and a sense of wonder as he is brought fully, more fully into your presence to a kind of beneficent aliveness that is beyond our understanding. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. God of mercy, we pray for those who are in need of physical, spiritual, or emotional healing. We pray for those who are in prison and those who are prisoners to addiction. We pray for those of us with mental illness, we pray for those who are experiencing overwhelming loneliness. We pray for those who are dying. God, wrap them all in your arms. Breathe into them all your light and peace. Lord, in your mercy, Hear our prayers. God of mercy, we have not loved you with all that we are. We have hurt people in our lives and people passing through our lives with things that we have done and things that we have left undone. We ask for your forgiveness and know you judge us with your grace. Lord, in your mercy, Hear our prayers. God of mercy, 
Meet us now in this time of silence. Let us step forward in your mercy. Amen. Today's reading is from John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty to thirty gallons. Jesus said to them, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. When the steward tasted the water that had become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they remained there a few days. The end of the reading. Thanks be to God. I like birth stories. I like the birth stories in Matthew and Luke. And they give us this, this totally earthy beginning. Like, what a surprise. A shock to the great chain of hierarchical being. God born into the world like every other mammal. It's a potent blast. We don't get any baby Jesus and John. In the beginning, there's the eternal word become flesh. Flesh which is also a great image, though somehow it seems a little more abstract to me than a baby. The flesh, Jesus, says the writer of John, makes God known, which seems great. I mean, if God's out there or in here or wherever, I'd like to meet her, I think. But somehow it just doesn't seem true. Makes God known? Or at any rate, it's easy to miss Not that obvious, some light flickering in our peripheral vision that we only glimpse in moments. Or maybe you do feel like you know God. I don't know. It's certainly not the kind of knowing you arrive at by accumulating facts. It's some whole other level of knowing. In some range, just a little to the side of 
what we're usually very conscious of, like breathing maybe. Maybe part of the knowing is recognizing we can't always see it head on. I mean, this is even true about physical aspects of the world. You know, like gravity, you see the effects of it, but you, you can't see gravity. Maybe because head on, straightforward, obvious, would evoke a response in us that was different from what God is after. The Gospel of John repeatedly suggests that Jesus, who makes God known, is not at all about amassing glory and admiration for himself because he's so great, like, like Hercules or Serena Williams or MLK inspires your admiration, maybe even some sort of worship, possibly a tiny bit of envy. I mean, if you play tennis or if you were another civil rights leader, I mean, they are so obviously so great. The story the writer of the Gospel of John tells about the Word made flesh is a different sort of story than you might usually get about a God or a great human being. In this story, God comes with bones that can break and blood that can be shed, is rejected and scorned and dies for love, not glory. John can say a thousand times, God so loved the world, and we still think she's judging us, or others maybe who we think are more worthy of judgment, judging us or them as not quite good enough or nice enough or don't have it together enough to be really loved. The super lover comes into the world and the world doesn't know him. That's what it says in chapter one. That seems right. Maybe that's sort of like the underlying way it always is. Like there's some persistent low level fear that we aren't loved or lovable, or some sense that they, the right-wingers or left-wingers, elitists or wackos, enemies, deplorables, aren't lovable. God keeps trying to get through to us, has from the beginning since the garden, trying to free us from shame to love, from fear to love, but it's hard to get through to us. I miss getting to see baby Jesus and John. We do get this story in the second chapter about the wedding. The life and light of the world through whom everything was made is at a wedding with his mom. The light has a mom, a family, friends. He sits down and eats and has a glass of wine at this very human, intensely, complicatedly, arduously human event. Weddings were, and this is still true, even in our culture, I just went to one last night, weddings are not just simple unions, effortless, easy, light events, but economically, familially complex events. With sex and death, fear, failure, anticipation, optimism, hope, some of it on, some of it under the surface. Till death do us part in sickness and health. There's wedding imagery all over the Bible. 
In Isaiah, the land is married to God, who delights in her, the text says, like a young man who marries a virgin. I mean, forgive the book, it's antiquated ways. And of course, writers are always casting around for ways to talk about something, but I like this attempt. It's like God delights passionately in the earth and its inhabitants, mountains and olive trees and people, like a young man delighting and making love to his new lover. That's a robust image of God's delight in humanity. And I mean, the writers are going to try all sorts of ways throughout the Bible to speak of the love of God, like a father or a mother, a shepherd or a potter with quay, a friend, a lover. The writer's attempts cover the gamut of all the love we know, reaching for an adequate expression that might help us get a glimpse of the love of God. Isaiah imagines the consummation of God's kingdom of love, the hope beyond time as we know it, as God making a feast, a feast of great food and good wine for all the people. It's like God is a chef or God is a grandmother laying out a feast of homemade bread and roasted chicken and perfectly ripe tomatoes and fresh baked pies for all her beloveds. John's definitely big on images of God feeding us. Three sentences into the story of the wedding at Cana, though, and the wine runs out. Maybe it seems predictable, given all the wine imagery in the scripture that precedes this story, what will happen next. But as my great Bible teacher who I talked to this week, because this text seems so tired and uninspiring, I've only read it and preached on it a thousand times, What John Linton helped me see is that the way it happens is surprising, telling. Before the story is over, the writer of John says, what happens here is the first of Jesus' signs. The signs in the book of John that reveal who he is. So reveal what God is like. At first I felt resistant to the story, like, So Jesus turned some water into gallons of good wine. I mean, there might have been a time when that seemed wonderful, but at this moment in our collective existence, I felt like, who cares? How about Jesus give us a vaccine? Stop the temperatures from rising, upend the racist machine, heal Leif from his cancer. A good cabernet seems irrelevant. A lot of people just need the water. Just give them enough water to make milk for their babies. What difference does the abundant grace of God, whatever that even is, make right here, right now, when our friend died? And when our children's futures seem certain to be full of the tragic consequences of climate change, when the oligarchs, plutocrats, and kleptocrats rule the word world, Where's the light enlightening everyone and the grace upon grace? It must move in mysterious ways, like very mysterious ways. Okay, it it helped me to think about the human beings in this story of the wedding. So the wine running out at a wedding in first century Palestine was not a good thing. It was a catastrophe. 
Imagine something like the caterers not having enough food for the last tables at your reception. It would make the people who didn't get served feel bad, dishonored, unloved maybe even. Plus they'd be hungry. It would make the hosts feel ashamed. It would actually have been an enormous social disgrace for the family. And also a terrible sign for the prospects of the couple, for their marriage. For all their festivity, there's also a subtext of anxiety in most of the weddings I've been a part of. This is the wedding where the greatest anxieties come to fruition. A disaster. You get all these people to dress up and plan their whole day, or their week in the case of first century Palestine, around you and your wedding. Your rabbi and your best friend's teenage son and your kindergarten, kindergarten teacher. They're all there to honor you. And they've even spent a lot of money on you. Pick something from your wedding gift registry. The presents are already all piled up at your house because Amazon Prime. And, and you do this? Dishonor to them? You do not have enough to give them what they are anticipating. A part of this promised celebration. I mean, it's almost scary, the implication of running out of wine. Your aunt, your grandma, your second cousin, your good friend, your boss, coworkers, everyone important to you, and some people you don't even know that well. Like, all of them looking around at each other. Well, I guess they didn't plan very well. Disappointing all these people. Dishonoring them, really. Taking from them without giving them. Sometimes when I first read a story about Jesus, I'm not that open to him for some reason. So like he does this first sign, and first I think, oh, he's doing something dramatic to impress the people, to get people to believe in him or think he's great. And that seems not that genuinely kind or loving or something. Does Jesus really care about these people, or does he just want to make some point about how great he is? But this is the thing that I wasn't paying attention to that Linton brought to my awareness. Nobody even knows. Jesus saves the party, averts disaster, and no one is even aware that he did it. His mom knows on the servers, but it sounds like the disciples don't even know until later after the fact. The hosts, the couple, who were about to be horribly shamed, about to experience this terrible sign of hopelessness for the prospect of their marriage. The guests who were nearly dishonored, left hungry, don't even know that Jesus frees them from all this, replenishes the wine to avert disaster. But they are freed. It really makes it seem like Jesus loves them. Genuinely cares about them. Jesus turns the water into wine under the radar. After they hear about this sign, the disciples believe in him, it says. Maybe because what it made them see about Jesus was his love for people. They saw that Jesus gave them a gift without wanting or needing any sort of kudos or praise or credit. It wasn't about getting anything. It was really all about giving. 
something that does seem like it might be love. A miracle at a wedding that detracted from the celebration of the couple, that would have actually really messed things up for the wedding party. So Jesus gives them what they need, saves them from their shame, but does it on the down low. So he doesn't get the glory the situation might otherwise have given him. Jesus is seeing that his friend whose wedding he was attending doesn't feel shamed and does it in a way that the friend doesn't even know he's doing it. Would having faith in God mean something like believing God is doing this for us, even if we only ever glimpse it flickering on the periphery of our vision? Trusting that in spite of being ill-prepared, certainly capable of behaving shamefully, in spite of our being entangled in a fraught and intricate web of familial and economic complexity, in spite of all that, God delights in us like a lover. Seems impossible. At least hard to believe. But can you believe a little that the love of God is working inside of you or under you or beside you or over your head to free you? Free you from shame to love, from fear to love, and joy. Maybe God knows something about how we can receive love. And it's not so head-on or something through power or something, maybe more like breath or bread or food. And nothing can separate us from the love of God. Not life or death, not things present or things past, not anything else in all of creation can separate us from the love of God. Though we don't always see it. Why don't you find a glass of wine or grape juice or water and dip a piece of bread in it and eat the love of God? This is God's table and all are welcome. On the night he was handed over to death, Jesus took bread and gave thanks for it and broke it and gave it to the disciples to eat, saying, Take, eat. This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after supper, Jesus took the cup and gave the cup for all to drink, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for you and shed for all people for the forgiveness of sin. Do this and remember me. Partake of communion, if you can, during the next hymn. Please join with us in singing House of Mercy hymn number 34, No Depression. Days we know 
dread depression now is spreading. God's word declares it would be so. I'm going where there's no depression to a lovely land that's free from care. I'll leave this world of toil and trouble. My home's in heaven, and I'm going there. Look up, rejoice, ye holy people. Before this awful time you'll fly, for Christ will come as he has promised. His bride will meet him in the sky. I'm going there. the God of justice, the God of mercy, the God who stands with us in the streets, be with you and go with you wherever this week takes you. Amen.